I'd like for you to open your Bibles tonight to Psalms 37. On the nights that I'm allowed to preach here again on Wednesday nights, this is my psalm, Psalms 37. I've been reading the psalms for the last two or three months, and I'm in no hurry to get through them because I enjoy what they say. I'm not really amazed because I've been there before, but it is wonderful how much God speaks in the psalms of his willingness to bless us. All the things he said that are ours, that he will do for us, the things that are set aside for us. With us in mind, sometimes I think he wrote the Psalms so that we can see just how much deliverance we can have from the cares of this life by just simply trusting in the Lord. Like in Psalms 37, the very last verse winds up the whole book by saying it's for those that trust the Lord. I mean, that seems to be a major theme in Scripture. And sometimes, to me, it seems anyway, that God gives us all these glowing promises and all these wonderful things that he can do and said he would do just to promote trust. He can't lie. He can't say something and not mean it. He can't promise something and not be able to do it. He can't make a, a statement in the Bible that's beyond him. And so if we read it like children reading the Father's Word, we realize that what our Father is telling us is what we can count on Him to do. So when you talk about count, let me talk tonight about, from Psalm 37, about counting your blessings. How's that? You can't. It'd take you all night to count them. But isn't there a hymn that says, count your blessings, name them one by one? Count your many blessings, see what God has done. I believe God enjoys blessing us. I do. I think it's your Father's good pleasure to bless His people. And I think the reason we moan and groan in this life and complain and act like we just don't know what we're going to do, oh my, is because we've never really believed that He really will do what He said. We've heard it. But it goes in one ear and out the other ear. And as I'll say in just a moment, when you listen to what God says and you don't pay attention to it, that's a manifestation, a form of wickedness. And we would never call it that because we're church people. But you'll see shortly here, there's a whole lot in the Bible about that. Now, previously in Psalms 37, I spoke on two dogs that bite. Remember that? In verse 1 of Psalms 37, and those two dogs that bite are one, we fret. We just yak and fret, and we get down in a dump, and, and just yak, and complaining. And, and then the other was that we're envious. We look at people that have things we don't have, and we wish we had that. And the people that seem to have it aren't the kind of people that love the Lord or serve the Lord or even trying to. But they've everything they do works. Everything they touch, you know, just comes to pass. And we just talk about, I don't know why. So that message was about two dogs that bite. Then the next time it was about, in Psalms 37, how we muzzle those dogs. And it goes down through verse 8 or, or 9. And he talks about trusting and delighting and committing your way and, 
resting in the Lord and ceasing from anger and fretting. These are things that everybody in this room can do. Each one of these things are choices that we can make. We don't have to make them, and many people don't, but you can. It's like God has given you this. In Psalms 37, just briefly again, trust the Lord with all your heart. There's nothing to keep you from doing that. You can do that. You absolutely are able to do that. And verse 14, delight yourself in the Lord. You can. There's nothing to keep you from it. Delighting yourself in the Lord. And he said, if you would, what did he say he would do? He'll give you the desires of your heart. I could say this on the behalf of God. What more does he have to say? How much more of a detailed promise does God have to make to inspire us? To draw us out of a complacency to a believing world, Lord. How much more? And then he said, verse 5, commit your way unto the Lord. We don't necessarily like to do that because we have, we think, a better way, a more prosperous way than his way. And his way is a little confining, a little restrictive, but his way is best. And he said it again, commit your way to him, trust also in him, and he'll bring to pass everything he promised. And then he said in verse 7, rest in the Lord, quit striving and struggling, wait patiently for him. Again, fret not yourself because of somebody out there who's doing things the world's way and getting way ahead, you think, don't envy that. Don't fret because of that. He said in verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath and fret not for the third time thyself in any way to do that. Now, these are the things that he's promised. We want to skip a few verses here because a, a whole lot of what follows down to verse 22 where I'm going is about the wicked. God's attitude towards the wicked, his promised wrath against the wicked, how that all the wicked that are admired by the world, from the great athletes to the beautiful movie stars to the wealthy, the rich and the famous with the yachts and the boats and opportunities and unrestrained freedoms. Oh, and yet the end of all those people is death. There's nothing about death to envy. There is nothing about a life that leads to destruction that we should envy. Because if there's any wisdom at all in us or about us, we look at the way a person lives and we realize that they're not living right. They get everything they want, but something's wrong with that. Then I should not envy that. I should not desire what they get that way because the end of that person is destruction. And the wicked, well, let me say this about them. Wickedness is probably much more common than we're willing to admit. The word wicked, wickedly, and wickedness, I counted them today. There are 467 times in the Bible those words are used to describe people that are the opposite of right with God. Because the word wickedness would be like contrasting righteousness. The righteous are right with God. The wicked are not right with God. They justify why they're not right because they say, well, I'm not ready for that as I'm 
that's just a little over my head. Well, I, and they have all these excuses, and they please themselves with those excuses, but they're still wicked when they get through making their excuses. They're wicked in their speech, like in Psalms 37. He said the wicked are going to be cut off. He said their arms are going to be broken. He said their lives will come to naught. They're going to be defeated. There's nothing about wickedness that's good. We didn't talk about how many times the word evil, evil people, evil speaking, evil surmisings, wrongdoers, stiff necks, stubborn, all the many words in the Bible that describe people that are going down the path to death. We notice them a lot because so many of them are worldly famous, well-to-do. You won't find them in here. Even Paul wrote in the New Testament, you won't find many people in the church like that. This is not what they want. The door's not shut to them. The door opens. But they hear the truth. We're not talking about some little social fluffy thing. We're talking about a truth of how to live. They hear that. They evaluate that. You put some sort of a number to that and you think, you know what, I don't think I can afford to be a Christian. I don't think I can give up what I have because I can't do what I'm doing, obviously, and do things God's way. And I don't think I can give this up. And that very process of evaluation is wickedness. See, we don't want to call it that. But we have to call it something because it's anti-God's way. Nice church folks do it. When we gossip and backbite, it's wicked. It never was not wicked. And when we complain, it's wicked. God heard his people, Numbers 11, he heard them complain, and he was angry, and he judged with great judgments came on his people because of all people on the earth, they complained after what you saw in Egypt and what I've done in the wilderness, and you're complaining? Boy, he hammered them. But wickedness is a lot of things, and the more we relate to the world, you watch the world, you tune into the world and you do the world thing, the more wickedness like leaven, it just sort of comes into your life. In the 16th chapter of Numbers, Moses was challenged by the elite of the people that were brought out of Egypt. 250, the Bible said, princes of Israel. The renown. They were called men of renown. Everybody knew these guys. They had reputation. And they came to Moses and said, who made you to be ruler over everybody? Why are you setting yourself up to be our boss? Why are you more able or capable than the rest of us? He said, you know, the whole nation is holy. They were liberal. Everybody is holy, and, and yet here you are barking out orders and telling us and this and that and thus and so. No man was meeker in all the earth than Moses. Anytime you lead... Anytime you stand in front of, anytime you give a testimony or you make a decision or do what I'm doing, anytime you do that, you're setting yourself up for continual evaluation and criticism. There's no time you're not. Every time you're there, every word, there are people who listen to every word, look for a mistake, listen for something wrong, listen for something misquoted, something so they can talk about it. These men came to Moses, who was not a perfect man. He was as flawed as any of us. I'll paraphrase. Who do you think you are being our boss? I mean, you're no better than we are. 
Moses said, I have never tried to be your boss. I'm putting these in my words. I've never tried to tell anybody what to do. I haven't taken anything from any of you. But he was getting hot. He said, you all come out here tomorrow, all of you, and you bring your censors. Let's go before the Lord, all of us. And then these words about that in Numbers chapter 16. He said, depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. Now, what made them wicked? Listen, now, there's a message here. If we don't get anything else out of this tonight, there's one here. What makes a congregation or members of it wicked? It's opposition, isn't it? It never has meant that the leader's perfect. I don't know how many ducks he's got, but I guarantee if he, if he put them all in front of you, they wouldn't all be straight. <laughs> Nobody was ever meant to be perfect. Only God is perfect. Perfection in the Bible is a word dealing with reaching the end of your goal, of where God puts you. Doesn't the Bible say Jesus was perfected? Through sufferings, it says. This was involved in him obtaining our salvation. For him to become everything he had to be and stand at the end pure and holy and acceptable to God, he had to go through a lot of suffering. And it was a lot of anguish and so forth. But he was perfected. That is, he reached his goal. He came to his end like that. And anybody, I think, that wants to lead, tries to lead, desires to lead. Bible even tells us, don't be a teacher. Don't do that because you set greater judgment. But somebody will, somebody has to. God has people that will. But Moses, he said, you come out tomorrow and we'll see. But he told the people in that 26th verse, he said, depart from these men and from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed by their sins. Is it possible that in the congregation of God's chosen, personally selected people, that there could be such wickedness? See, we didn't want to say that either, but it could be. It could be. God wants our hearts to be right before him. You can't make it right. Only God can make it right. But there's got to be a reason I want my heart right. There's got to be a reason that I need to be humbled. There's got to be a reason we need to see things God's way and subscribe to it and yield to it and bow ourselves under the mighty hand of God and so forth. In that way, and, and I really believe this, people that do that are the people that will be useful to the Lord. And, you know, being useful to the Lord means that there's a lot of things that God will have us pointed at, things that we can do. These folks that just came back from the Dominican Republic. You know, the more you sit down and evaluate what you did, why you did it, would you do it again? If you would, why? What good was it? What was the value of it? If there's an honest evaluation, not just some function, would you go back? Would you help another group? Would you do it again? Would you do it because it's the Lord's will for you to do it? See, all these kind of things you evaluate. You think about it. You want your heart to be zeroed in on the fact that I'm not just following an idea that somebody else had. I believe this is the leading of God for me as a part of that. And I want to do this with all my heart. 
and all my soul and strength and so forth. Because as you have done unto the least of these, you've done it to whom? Me. Me. That's what Jesus said. Isn't it good that as we're growing older and maybe hopefully maturing and seeing things a little more grown up that we can see needs beyond ourselves? That the house, the car, the gun, the boat, the special bread dog, whatever it is that people are looking for, pales in light of this last day of what's really important. And the fact that the only people that are really going to do th things that God wants are those that are paying attention. There's not a lot of us. But anyway, anyway, let me get back to counting your blessings. Otherwise, we'll be on another missionary journey before this meeting's over. Count your blessings. Wickedness is not something you want. You want to be blessed. If God wants to bless us, should we not want it? If it pleases God to bless us, should we not be blessed? Well, you know, Proverbs says, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. You'll never regret when God blesses you. Now, Verse 22, Psalms 37, he uses a word here three times in the 37th Psalm. It's the word inherit. For such as are blessed of him shall inherit the land. Now, would you agree with me that if I am able to define how that I have inherited the land or a portion of it, that it's a sign that I have been blessed, that God has blessed me. Would you say it that way? He said, such as are blessed of the Lord shall inherit the land. He says it in verse what, 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. Verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. It must be a big deal to God for us to inherit the land, not owe for it, but to inherit it. Inheritance is something given. An inheritance is not something that you have, not even necessarily a right to, but it's something that somebody who has it is willing to give to you. You know it's God. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. He said he would. He said more than once that he would bless us in ways like that. Now, the word inherent simply has to do with provisions. To say, how do you inherit the earth? Well, that gets kind of technical and we lose the meaning. But to inherit the earth means that God will bless you. Your provisions will be taken care of. My God shall supply all of your needs. Not because you're shrewd and clever or even worthy of it, but because you simply subscribe to what he said, Lord, be it unto me according to the will. You begin to live that way, make those decisions, and God begins to bless you. He gives us richly. Remember that in 1 Timothy 6? He gives us richly all things to what? There are never things that you can take with you to heaven because you brought nothing into this world. You're not going to take anything out of this world. How would you define richly then all things to enjoy? Richly, does that mean three Cadillacs? Which would be about the value of what, two Fords? <laughs> Just kidding. But one good Dodge, amen. 
We haven't used that one much, have we? Richly. I find, I know with Bonnie too, I find that through the years, the years of walking by faith, using your faith and, and pressing in and holding on and walking things out and going through this and, and doing without a lot, when you press in and God brings these blessings into your life. And one day, as I've shared with you in the past, like one day I was sitting out in a little room on my land right behind the garage. I'm just sitting there quiet. I was looking around the room and I was looking at all the stuff. And it is just stuff. Looking at all the stuff and looking on the floor, there was stuff on the floor and stuff here and stuff there. Now there's a safe over there and it's full of stuff. And then here's some camouflage clothes so nobody can see you if you wear anything. You couldn't get anything else in it. And there's a little attic. Had to build an attic, put more stuff in. And there was stuff in there and there's stuff under here. There was stuff there. I had to clean stuff off to do anything because there's so much stuff. I'm not boasting. I'm just saying that as I was there that day, I said, Lord, you have given me so much. It's not the best stuff there is. It wasn't certainly not the most expensive stuff you could have, but it was pleasing to me as what I wanted. How many of you know you don't have to have the very finest million-dollar car in order to be happy? Because just one good forward and you are set for the rest of your life. Amen. Maybe. <laughs> but, richly, you know, the older we get, the more things have happened, the more things have come to pass, and things have been added to. It's just one day you realize, look, you know what? I don't even have any more room. I'm not going to build another barn, but I don't even have any more room. But I don't want any more. And if I do, he'll give it to me. That's what I call richly all things, because all this stuff is just for pleasure. It has a time. It has a place. It is worthless, to tell you the truth. It has no redeeming value. None of it does. But it's something I like, and it pleases God for me to be happy with it. Amen? Amen? That's what I mean by richly all things to enjoy. He will bless you with the desires of your heart. Your heart's desire might be a new sewing machine, not one that you can say, sew, stop sewing, change the thread, do this. You don't need one of them, just one you can just enjoy. You know, I don't need a car to go out in the garage and say, door open. They almost are there. You know, this one I got now has a cruise control on it. It's a radar thing, and you turn it on. But the problem with it is when you get close to a car, the brakes stop, and you can't get any closer. It's got a little button. If you change lanes, beep, 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 so you can't even fall asleep in the thing. <laughs> so get a Ford. But he said he would give us richly all things to enjoy. Verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he, God, delighteth in his way, or the man who is blessed delights in his way. You can make it either way you want it. I'm sure one of those two ways is right, of course. But I can see that God's way for me is a delight. And I think it pleases God for me to be delighted and for him to open doors for me to have a delightful way. 
Doesn't mean there's not trouble. Doesn't mean there's no problems. It doesn't mean you don't have conflicts and wars and all. You'll have that all your life. But they don't defeat you anymore. They're there. You got to deal with them. They just don't defeat you. But you notice there the word good is a word added by the translators if you have a King James Bible. Another translation that I called upon said, The steps of a man are from the Lord, and he establishes him in the way that he delights in, the way that God delights in. And he said his steps won't slide. He's blessed. I like that. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. Now, the last couple of weeks on Sunday, we've used a verse in Jeremiah. Remember what verse it is? Chapter what? Say 10. That's right. And verse, say 23. 23, that's good. Y'all remembered it. Turn to Jeremiah 10, 23. What a wonderful verse. Think of it. Your steps won't slide. You won't be indecisive and uncertain. You'll be confident on the inside and not afraid. Jeremiah 10, 23. Oh, Lord, he said, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Well, then how will he ever get where God wants him to go? How could he ever make it? Didn't the psalmist say, teach me thy way so I can walk in thy light? Then why would he say that? Because no man left alone detached from God can ever be or wind up where God wants him to be or to wind up. He can't make it. A man's journey through life is only successful when God ordains it. We'd like to think as smart as we are and as clever as we are and as all of that, that uh, we can do this. But truth of it is only God can cause us to arrive at our destination. The Bible said the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. Obviously, not every man whose steps are ordered. Otherwise, God wouldn't judge so many people. But so many people are going the wrong way, and, and they're headed for judgment. He, God speaks of it throughout the Bible. Why not you and I? Even if we are on the wrong trail tonight, even if we're not walking in a way that we should be walking or going in the right direction, maybe we are distracted by something in this world or some unreasonable or wrong idea. Maybe we are in some way being misled. Is God able to correct us? He can let you go astray for a while. There are people that backslide. He can let you get in a ball in a wad somewhere. That happens all the time. But he won't leave you there. Because God is able to do whatever he has to do to correct us. And the only reason he ever corrects us is because he loves us and not everybody gets corrected. But he said, whom he loves, he what? Say chastens. Chastens. He corrects. He instructs and teaches. He brings back in harmony with what is right, disciplined and okay with him. He does that because he that started a good work in anybody that he started to work in, whoever he started to work in, what will he do? He'll finish it. And nobody's going to pluck you out of his hands. 
you're going to get lured away. A lot of people that I've known, I mean, have been around long as most of you have. Longer than most of you, but not all of you. I've seen so much come and go. I've seen so many frivolous spiritual movements and people whom I thought were taught were well informed about the gospel. They just follow anything new. They'll up and ride off and follow something new. It's just like, you know, people getting all involved. The church today is getting to be very political in politics. And, and never stop to think, how could a Christian who is supposedly serving God serve heathens? How do you give your life to serve an unregenerate society? They don't want what you got. The only way you keep your job is to let go of your convictions to do what they want. Because you get right down to it, they'll hate your way Jesus said they would. How in the world can you think like that? People do. People think that way all the time because they're going in a direction they hope is right. It's religious. It sounds good. People subscribe to it, so it must be okay. But the Bible said there is a way that seems right, but it's a way of death. Proverbs 16 says, a man's heart deviseth his way. I'm required to make that decision. God will show it to me, and he'll really make me know that's right. But he said, a man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Otherwise, if God did not direct his steps, how in the world could we ever get where we're going, and how would you know where you were when you got there? I'm not here to live an aimless life. The gospel of Christ is not think of a good way to go and give it your best shot. God knows your heart. That's not the Bible. There's only one way that is right. There's only one way to say what is right, and that's to say what God says. And if, whether it's in season or out of season, it's the only right way. It's, there's too many different views for us to accommodate everybody and try to be everybody's best buddy. Best thing to do is to love the Lord with all your heart, speak the truth that way, and let God sort it out, because that's what he does. But it's my job and my responsibility to heed what he's saying, to listen to what he's saying, and to do it. Listen to these verses from Proverbs. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Ponder, think about, meditate, consider, dwell on the direction you're going tonight in this room. Maybe just being here. The question was asked me once, why do people attend church in Shelbyville Christian Assembly? Why are you folks here? Well, because Brother Hamilton is so wonderful. Hardly. Why are you here? What good is it to be here if your life isn't changing? Well, anyway, that's another question for another time. Listen at this verse in the Psalms. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. Another verse says, order my steps in thy word. Where else is right? And then I want to show you one in Psalm 121, but I want you to read it yourself. In Psalms 121, and we'll come back to Psalm 37, 121 and verse 3. 
He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee shall not slumber. That is the person that God is directing your steps. He will not allow you to wander away from him and be gone. He won't do that. You may wander, you may have a very hard head, and you may be under spiritual attack from the Lord a lot because he's corrected us. But he said, again in that verse, there's one more in this verse too, but he said, he will not suffer your foot to be moved. And the verse 8, the last verse is Psalm 121. Follow me. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Amen. Go back to Psalm 37. So it's nice to know that while I have to make decisions and wrestle with God about what to do with my life, it is God ultimately who is leading me, bringing me to where I should be. That without him, I could not do it. But with him, I don't think that I cannot do it. I believe that. Psalms 37 and verse 24. Here's a promise that you will be held fast and you will be restored back if you do fall. We just mentioned that a while ago. Verse 24. He said, though he fall... This man whose steps are guided, isn't that something? The Lord's guiding you and you fall. Well, the Lord didn't make you fall. We fall because we have a little bit better idea of our way than his way. But it happens. It's in your Bible. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down or abandoned. But he said, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. If he falls... God will hold him up. Isn't that good? I know of a couple of people in the Bible who fell. Men of renown, Bible people, Scripture people whose names are emblazoned in Scripture forever. The word which shall never pass away, these names shall always be there. One is David, King David, a man after God's own heart. Did he ever fall? He fell bad enough that he could have died legally by law. He could have been stoned to death with Bathsheba. Remember the story? And then when she conceived and he tried to hide that by her husband, when he came back, brought him back from the war, said, go see your wife. He wouldn't do it because his men were dying out there in the battle. So David sent him back into battle, told Joab, put him in the front line where the heat is and let him die. This is a sweet psalmist of Israel. You think some of you have really been bad and you're too bad to ever get right with God? None of you have ever done this. None of you. And you see what kind of a broken and contrite heart this man wound up with in Psalm 51 when Nathan the prophet approached him. said, you're the man, David. I'm glad that prophet had nerves say that to the king. And the king broke down. He said, I have sinned. That's why he had a heart like the Lord. He didn't fight against God. He was normal and he was passionate and he was a man of blood. God wouldn't even let him build a temple because he killed so many people. But boy, his heart when it came to worship and giving and honoring the Lord and repenting, David had a heart unusual, a heart after God. 
But he was very imperfect like you and I are. But God kept that man on the right path, brought him to the end of his life, the Bible said, full of days. He never abandoned him. I think of a man named Peter. We're all familiar with Matthew 14 when Peter was walking on the water. Jesus walked on the water. You remember Peter got out and walked to him and began to sink. And then they came back to the boat. And Jesus said to Peter, why did you doubt? Why did you give up? Why did you doubt? I mean, you were doing the same thing I'm doing. We had the same power. The same thing that God gave me to walk on the water, God gave you. We're doing the same thing. And you begin to wonder how in the world this is going on. How could this be? Then you begin to sink. Why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith? That's not a compliment. And then worse than that was when he denied Christ. He denied him with, with passion. And then Jesus met him on a seashore. Why would he do that to a guy that just, oh no, if everybody forsook you, I won't forsake you. Uh, 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 uh. Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Oh no, no man, uh, uh, no way. See, sometimes, folks, listen to me. Sometimes we're pretty cocky people. We've learned a lot. We've been around. We know some people. We've done some things. What have you done? And sometimes we're pretty full of ourselves, proud of ourselves. Everything that heaven doesn't want, it creeps into your life. It's like leaven. It's in there to ruin and to mess up everything that was supposed to be good. It just comes in and you begin to see yourself as really important not willing to lower yourself to help people below you. You begin to need a good moment with God, a good out-back, leather-strap, chastening time with God. But God does that to people like us so that we quit doing that until hopefully we come to the place, I'm just glad that I'm here. I have no more of a right to what God is saying and doing than anybody else. We all have been brought into something that's way over our heads. And God is for us. I'm glad to be here. I belong here. It's my passion and desire more than anywhere else in the world to be here. This is where I want to be. This is what I do. This is what I want to do. I know I can't do this all for another 25 years. I'd be, man, I'd be a moldy old man 100 years old. But that's, this is it. This is the heart's desire. I'm not going to stay away from this. I want to be here. I want to hear what's being said. When I'm no longer allowed to get up here anymore, they won't let me preach anymore. I want to hear what somebody else says. I do. Don't you try to put me away from here. Not yet. But anyway, I want to hear it. I just know that sometimes we get a little cocky. We won't admit it. Oh, no, you can never admit that. But deep down inside, you do compare yourself with other people, your church with other churches, your way with other people's ways, and you measure up a whole lot better than they do. And you kind of feel good about that. And that's not exactly a good thing to do. 
Because sometimes when you get alone and your heart's right, God will humble you. You think you're a pretty good preacher. And you hear that guy, that Pentecostal, screaming and yelling in that mic, slobber dripping all over the thing. And you think, well, a poor soul. And a man spends half the day with the Lord in time with the Lord. He sees souls get saved there. We can ministers on the streets, prays with people, goes places, spends his own money. He lives his entire life for the good and the well-being of somebody else that can never pay him back because love is a giving thing, not a getting thing. He can't preach worth a lick. And you think you could. So you go to his church one night and they fall asleep while you're preaching. <laughs> you old dull thing. I could tell you a story. It takes too long to tell it. But how God can humble you. Now I listen to him. God knows my heart when I say this. I listen to him now on the radio when I'm driving and I need to listen to something. Stay awake. And they come out yelling like that. I think, man, that guy's a good preacher. Now you laugh, but I'm serious. I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could put words together as well as he can, because as far as I'm concerned, I am less than the least, like you are, of sinners. I am the least of the apostles, Paul said. I know why I would say that. Because after all those years of walking with God and all the hardships and all the time spent and the close encounters with God and the corrective ideas, his attitude gets refined, Paul came into his life saying one thing, I just want to know him better. That's my life. Whatever is all about him, that's what I want. That's where I want to be. Hopefully that's what this is all about tonight, our church. But he said this. Sometimes he said, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. The psalmist said this, Psalm 145, verse 14, said, The Lord upholdeth all that fall. You may fall. But he still got his hand on it. Do you hear me? You're learning. He lets you do that, just like you let your children. Would you let a child that can't fully ride a bike good yet take off down a driveway in a bike? And then you kind of hear that noise. And they're watered up in the wheel and the frame, and there's one in there, you know, bleeding in the elbow. Would you let your child do that? Would I think I did? <laughs> what if they can't swim? Good. Would you throw them in a the pool? I got one here. She, I, <laughs> yeah. Which one of y'all did I throw in a pool? Wasn't you. David was born swimming. They were there at the pool, and they, you know, and I just grabbed one, walked over there. You know, their eyes this big, and they were, you dog paddle, you're this far above the water, and you, ah, ah, and you get this. Next thing you know, they're up there on a diving board jumping off of it. We learn like that, whether we want to admit it or not. And just as we learn like that, God allows us to do things. Sometimes they fail, it seems like. They don't come out right. We didn't get exactly everything right. But in all of this, it's a part of his plan. Proverbs says, a just man falls seven times and rises up again. Think of it. A just man falls. A man is right standing with God. Even they can fall. But they'd never stay down. 
because the Bible says that God raises them back up. This is what Luther said. If a man fails, God catches him by the hand and raises him up again. Or he could have said this when Peter began to sink. He could have stepped back and said, well, that's what you get. Splashing around her and finally going down in the deep. He said, well, that's, you boys in the boat have enough sense to weather like this around and waves blowing like this. And, you know, don't get out of the bus. I mean, a man with good sense wouldn't do what this man did. How many of you know he didn't do that? He grabbed him and he said, oh, Peter, why did you doubt? Peter said, I did better than they did. <laughs> the guy's back. No, he didn't say that because that would have been arrogant. How many of you know the time Peter got back in the boat, his head was bowed? How many of you know when that rooster crowed, his head was bowed? How many of you know on the seashore when he met Jesus there and he said, do you love me? His head was bowed when he said yes to his kind of love. That's what God does to us. We make all these mistakes in our life and sometimes we just don't think we're fit for anything. And yet God brings us back, blesses us and shows us, I've been loving you all along. Remember that little poem about footsteps in the sand? I don't remember how all that go, but there was two set of footprints and then there was only one set of footprints. I said, what happened to the other set? I picked you up and carried you. It's like God saying, you are going to heaven. The place I have prepared for you, I chose you. I'm going to take you with me that where I am there, you may be also. So while you're in this earth, do your best. Treat your life as something that God honors and it's precious. But it's something you've got to prove. Do that. If you believe the Bible, God is always in control. Don't ever take for granted, oh, I don't, don't matter how I live, God's with me. I don't think that attitude is the right attitude. You might find that uh, you're not doing so well. Verse 25, quickly. He said, I have been young and have been old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Isn't that good? I will never come to a place in my life that this is going to happen to me. It may get bad and it may get tough. I will never have to beg, not me nor my seed. Now, who is my seed? We got seven children, don't we? How many children do they have? Going on 36. I got three great-granddaughters. Those are my seed. Those are mine. I own all of them. The clan leader, I, you know, <laughs> Papa. This is my seed. This is who comes in the realm of my claim. I can look at some of them now and I think, boy, how in the world is she going to get in? You know, or how in the world is he going to get in? Oh, man. But you know what? God is bigger than everybody in here. God can let you wander off into this world until nothing but darkness is around you. Your sins have eaten you up and they'll find you out. And God enters into that dark place, brings light, opens a path to your life you don't deserve, none of us did, and brings you out of darkness into his marvelous light with all your sins and all your wickedness and all that stuff. And he forgives you all of that. 
People like that love more than people that never have known sin. You know that? Jesus said, unto whom much is given, they love more. Do you suppose some of us live the way we did to have that as a reality in our life? I don't know what kind of theology that is, but I, I'm thinking that some of us, I, I know some of you pretty well, and, and I know that our background wasn't Sunday school. I mean, it was my church might have been in our life a little bit, but I would never have chosen me to be a child of God. Now, I'm sure I wouldn't have chosen most of you. But look what God chose. Look how bad we were. You weren't bad? Well, uh, there's some of us were bad for you. <laughs> Verse 28. Oh, you've got to love this. Listen, if you don't like this, you're not saved. If you don't like this verse, you need to get up right now, close your Bible, embarrass us all, and leave. If you don't like this, listen to it. Verse 28. For the Lord loves judgment or fairness and rightness and forsaketh not whom? The ones he said fall. The ones he said struggle or backslide. He loves them from the foundation of the world. He just lets some of them like John said the other night, what about, that was a revelation to me. A thief on the cross, two of them were railing on him, and one of them wound up in heaven. One of them went to heaven. Is that a last second? Well, they wasn't baptized. Well, we didn't have a New Testament baptistry made yet for it. Anyway, let's go on. Let's go on. Verse 28 again. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. They are preserved. What's that mean? They're kept. Folks, let me say it again. I believe, maybe it's my great, great, one of them great grandpas. I believe in eternal security of believers. Of believers. Not church members, of believers. I believe the preservation of the saints is one of those outstanding things that God does when he chooses you and brings you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He never let go of you because if he does, you won't make it. He never takes his hands off of you because if he does, you'll go astray. Come from the womb, you do that. But when he lays hold of you, you may struggle and flounder a little bit and you may flop and your personality goes through a change. It may be a, uh, but he's going to bring you into his eternal habitations. You think of it without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Who else could do that but God? And how dare we ever take that for granted? Oh, I'm preserved. How do you know you're preserved? But if I ask you tonight in here, how do you know you're preserved? Well, you don't know, but you have to what? Believe. It's all by faith. I believe I'm preserved. How do you know you believe? By the way you live, because if I'm saved, I wouldn't do that. If I'm saved, I wouldn't go there. If I'm saved, I wouldn't talk like that. If I'm saved, I wouldn't wear that. If I'm saved, I wouldn't walk like that. If I'm saved. There's a greater influence in me now I've never had there before. What's it all about? It's because of what I believe. My faith has drawn me into a different kind of life. I can't make anything true. I can only believe it's true. My faith doesn't make the word true. The word's true whether we believe it or not. 
I can't make God real. He's real whether I believe him or not. I can't make heaven real because heaven is real whether I believe it or not. That's a fact. My faith is based on facts. Unseen to the world foolish facts. That we lay down our life for the unseen foolish things of God. And we're willing to die for it. That's the difference God makes in a church between his people and those that are not his people. The wheat and the tares. There are just some who are bit, convinced, and settled into believing and taking God at his word. I can't make it true. I can only believe that all of this is true. But I am preserved forever. Verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. The world's going to do that to us. But God will deliver us from the world. One translator said it like this. He said, God will interpose to deliver the righteous from the evil designs of the wicked. I like that. Because I don't know what's ahead of us for tomorrow. I don't know what any of us will have to face. Nobody does. Nobody knows tomorrow. I can tell you this. God is already there. And that's good enough for me because he said where he is, there will I be also. And as he is, so are we in this present world. So praise God. And in closing, the last two verses. Well, verse 37 said, Mark the perfect man. You know, I hate to skip over. The, each of these deserve a whole night. Mark the perfect man for the end of that man is peace. Peace. He's not tore up. He's peace. Oh, Lord, forgive me for not dealing with it more. Verse 39 and 40. Here we go with five blessings in two verses. Number one, the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. Salvation. That deserves two weeks. The Greek word for salvation includes everything that pertains to your life and your well-being. Healing, safety, preservation, all these things. It's under the heading of saved or being saved or salvation. Salvation is not just fire insurance or some way to get to heaven. Salvation is a life that as you live, you live saved. God makes a difference. He turns your corners for you. All you have to do is follow. Second thing he said in verse 39, the Lord is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord is their strength in time of trouble. Let me ask you a question. If you believe that, why would you ever quit? Why would you ever give up when the everlasting arms that are spread towards his children are always there like his throne of grace is always there. You can come to it and plead your case and enjoy his fellowship and his love for you. That's a promise. I don't know how much we acknowledge it or believe it or act like it's true, but it's in there anyway. Whether you believe it or not, it's there. And he offers that to us, his strength. Verse 40, and the Lord shall help us. Now, I don't know about you, but I need help. 
I know you can say amen, but that, and I agree with you. He needs help. And fourthly, he delivers us. He's our deliverer. No weapon formed against us shall prosper, will it? And though a man fall, God will lift him up. And though the judge try to do this or that, God will deliver you from it. And though the sentence of death be on you by somebody else, God will deliver you. Like the story I told you once of the man who was in the last day, I said it was the last day vision, he said it was. He was tied to a stake, ever going to put that sock over his head or that black thing over his head, getting ready to shoot him because he was a Christian. And his avengers said, do you have anything to say before you die? And he said, yes, I do. He said, your guns won't fire in Jesus' name. And they yanked that sock down on his head. Whatever kind of weapon they had, probably uh, one of them new AR types. And they leveled the thing up. Fire! Click, 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 click. The sock fell to the ground. The ropes fell loose on the ground. And the man who was supposed to be shot disappeared and was found on the other side of the earth in a home in a prayer meeting, I think he said, in China. Could that happen? Could it not? In the Old Testament, there were those who chose to die. You remember Hebrews 11? They chose to die awaiting a better resurrection. And then there are some in this last day that may have a little different, you know, their prompting is to, uh, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. I mean, he wouldn't say, y'all, you better hope that gun's made out of chocolate because you're fixing to eat it. He wouldn't say anything like that. <laughs> you know, he'd just simply say, you know, the Lord rebuke you. That's what I say. The Lord rebuke you. Because God is our deliverer. And finally, he said in verse 4, And then he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust him. Above all, at the very top of the list, Jesus is our Savior. The one who saves. The one who keeps. The one who delivers. The one who heals. The one who is greater than a man can imagine or define. And all of that greatness, he comes to make his home in our miserable hearts. And there, renew us, redo us, repoint us, guide us through this life so that we make it even as unprofitable servants. We come to the end of our life. You know what he says to us? He says, well done, thou good and, say it, faithful servant. And we'll say this, Lord, my faithfulness was only a, only a bonus from you. Faith I had and the stuff I got, you know, you gave me that. You honored what you give because that's the way you are. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. It's wonderful. Count your blessings, folks. Name them one by one. Find you a quiet place tomorrow or in the next week. Sit down and just for, I tell you what, everybody can do it for two minutes of your life. Two minutes, that's, that's 120 seconds. Don't count because you can't count and pray at the same time. 
and just take time to say, Lord, I want to thank you. And then look around. Thank you for what? Well, I want to thank you for my health. I want to thank you for my marriage. I want to thank you for my children. I want to thank you for my grandchildren. I want to thank you for the church, for Thomas here. All of you. I just want to thank you, Lord. This is my family. <laughs> this is my crowd. Thank you for my car. Thank you for my, I say it, Ford truck. Thank you for my truck. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all the help. Thank you for the kitchen and everything in it works. Thank you for the washer and the dryer. Aren't you thankful for that? Thank you, Lord, for these cool nights that are coming. You can put the covers on and turn the air off. Get in that bed and enjoy a good night. Rest comes from God. Aren't you blessed? Would you rather have that or a free ride in a hospital? No, you'd rather just think, look at all the things we've been delivered from. All the accidents, the things we've lost have been found, the mistakes we have made, God's forgiven. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are thankful tonight. I ask you to make us even more so. Give us grateful hearts that whereby we truly delight in you. We get our eyes off of the things of this world that seem to mean so much, and yet they fade so fast. And help us to get our eyes on you as you draw us nearer. Lord, there are people sitting here tonight who came with needs. I don't know them, but you do. There are needs probably in every aisle. There's probably a struggle or two here in maybe every aisle. Things that we keep to ourselves. You know what it is. You know how to fix everything. God, may your grace find its way into our heart. May it cause courage to rise. May we lay hold on your promises and just say, Father, help me in Jesus' name. Help me, Lord. I ask you tonight in Jesus' name to help me do what's right, live what's right, and find your favor more than anything else. You know, if you can pray that prayer tonight, your blessings are coming your way. May God give you wisdom to recognize them. I ask you to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.